it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary, involuntary. We don't know the contrast organically. Oh, damn, I love that intro music. That's Three Teeth quickly becoming one of my favorite acts out of uh, Los Angeles, California, industrial metal group. I'm your host, Vince Emanuele. This is Meditations and Molotovs on the Progressive Radio Network. Welcome to the show. Good to join you. That music is awesome, man. You got to check out the album. If you're into that kind of stuff, that's just one taste. I hate to label it, too, you know, but... The point here is that uh, Alexis Mincola, the lead singer for Three Teeth, will be coming on the program here either next week or the week after. We'll talk about how the group started as sort of this multimedia art project, how it became a band. Alexis was a liberal arts graduate, tons of symbolism, numerology, occultism, uh, different ontologies that they're interested in and, and it's it's going to be an interesting conversation i mean i need to brush up on some of my philosophical mumbo jumbo but nonetheless um today well let me announce a couple of things actually first i'm running around today like a chicken with my head cut off so cut me a little bit of slack we do have a guest today, so for folks who are tuning in, please stay tuned. We're going to be joined uh, in a little bit in a few minutes here by Olga Batista. I want to announce an event, though, today in northwest Indiana. Here it is. Munster Immigration Rally. This is today. It's a public event put on by the First Unitarian Church of Hobart. Today, 6 p.m., at the Munster Town Hall in Munster, Indiana. That's today, 6 p.m., at the Munster Town Hall, which is at 1005 Ridge Road in Munster, Indiana. This is a immigration rally. This is a rally in solidarity with our brothers and sisters who are banned from entering the United States because of President Trump's executive order. Here's the language from the event. I'm sure everyone is aware of the president's executive order targeting Muslims from seven countries to be banned from entering the United States. We cannot allow this kind of decision to pass because this will set the precedent that it is okay to, to discriminate against people because of their religion. We had a meeting in, at the Highland Mosque with representatives from the Jewish and Christian faiths in our community who kindly offered to help stand with us in these difficult times. The first step to stopping this is to make sure our voices are heard. So we will rally today, Monday, January 30th at 6 p.m. in front of Munster Town Hall. We ask everyone to start gathering in the Masjid at 5 p.m. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And then we will carpool and leave together. I would just simply tell people to just go to the Munster Town Hall, be there by 6 p.m. They're encouraging people to bring candles and or flashlights. If you are going to bring posters, do not write anything negative. Let's stand together to make sure we have a safe future for our kids. That statement is from the Ileana Islamic Association. So, today, be there, folks. Another thing I mentioned earlier, and I've been hearing this a lot, I had a few conversations with folks last night, a friend of mine in Australia, but then also another person, another friend of mine who's been doing a lot of political work in the UK, and 
there's they both sort of mentioned or hinted at this this idea that the United that things have drastically changed after 9/11. Things did change. 9/11 accelerated a lot in terms of militarism in the United States, US empire, uh, US foreign policy added different elements to existing elements that already existed in US foreign policy. But the point is to correctly understand the history of this nation. There's no way to understand the United States without understanding imperialism, but even more so without understanding colonialism. We have to remember that this wasn't just a imperial project abroad, that the project of the United States rested on two horrific uh, factors, the first being indigenous genocide and the second being slavery. You cannot understand the development of the modern United States. You cannot understand the development of capitalism or many other institutions, phenomena within society without understanding that history. So part of what I mentioned earlier on social media, and I'm working on an article right now about this imperialism abroad, about the United States history of militarism and empire abroad, not so much the colonial aspect, I will mention that, but what we have been doing abroad. And I mentioned today that, you know, we were in Libya, we had U.S. Marines in Libya back in 1805, folks. Back in 1805. If any of you have ever heard the Marine Corps hymn, the first lines in it are from the halls of Montezuma, an island, Japanese island, where Marines were fighting, to the shores of Tripoli. 1805. Okay, folks. Olga Batista is on the line, a lifelong resident and community organizer of Chicago's Southeast Side. She is a founding member of Chicago's Southeast Side Coalition to Ban Pet Coke. Olga ran for alderman of Chicago's 10th Ward, ward I was born in, well, born and raised for a little while, in 2015 and continues to devote her time and energy toward building progressive political movements throughout the Chicagoland region. Olga, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. So happy to oh, be on your show today. Oh, it's good to hear from you. It's good to hear from you. I know we've been talking more and more recently, which is good for me. Um, I, I, there's so much going on locally. But I want to talk about your background, as I try and do with most of the guests who come on. So, you know, I was pulling up an old article that you wrote for The Socialist Worker, and I really enjoyed it. And I wanted to read the first paragraph and just kind of see if we can lead into sort of your uh, childhood background, where you come from and all that. And so you write back sure. in January 30th of 2014, which seems like, oh, God, this, is that today? That was today, three <laughs> years ago, huh? Jesus. Oh, that's funny. <laughs> cool. Okay, that's so, cool. so you write, growing up was sometimes lonely for me and my younger siblings, Roberto and Katie. We didn't have any uncles, aunts, or cousins in Chicago. Most of our extended family settled in California, Colorado, and Utah. Two aunts moved to Joliet, Illinois, and others stayed working on their families' ranches in Mexico. Because of this, our neighbors and the community of South Chicago became our family. My parents are from Nayarit. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correct. Is that Nayarit? Nayarit. Nayarit and yep. Jalisco? Mm-hmm. And they settled in South Chicago in the mid-70s, only a few years before the steel mills here started to close down. So tell me a little bit about growing up on the south side of Chicago, where your family's from. How, how did you become the person you are today? Yes, um, thank you. Uh, I just want to say I was really enjoying where you were going um, 
right now with your with um, talking about like why America is so great. You know, I I feel like I say this a lot too. You know, like we're America is wonderful. A lot of countries will be really wonderful. <laughs> can do really great economically if they have. 500 years of free labor <laughs> you know what I mean like it's yep. just um yep. it's just so nuts so I, I was right there with you um but yeah my family came uh to work here um they worked in the steel mills my di- dad did some meat packing and um and then he studied and became a welder and um he just recently retired he's 65 <laughs> and my mom um, also she stayed. At, she worked um, as a housekeeper when she first came uh, across the border. She was 15. She was working in uh, Northbrook, Illinois, and my aunt was, came with her, and she worked in the house next door. And she she had um, um, a really good job, paid her really well, and the family was took her in like a daughter. Oh, they were super cool with her. And um, my dad would go visit her in Northbrook, and they would um, they had tennis courts in the backyard, and they would they would play tennis and like ride like tandem bikes, you know, around Northbrook. And when um, <laughs> my I know it's like the cutest thing, right? And um, <laughs> and then we moved. Um, my my dad and my mom met here though in South Chicago. They met at a church, Our Lady of Guadalupe Church. And it has a lot of stories like this, you know, that start, like, they met at church. It's like the proverbial, like, the, the uh, town town square, you know? And, um, right, right. And it was a, a, also just a very, it has a lot of history of being, like, um, you know, welcoming to immigrants being the first um, Mexican-American church um, here in, the, in this region. Um, but, um, it was really fun growing up here. I mean, we went to the beach all the time at Cal Park. Cal my, Park. Dad, my dad actually became a really great tennis player. <laughs> and, um, you know, he like finished cutting the lawn at, at home and then like be all full of, you know, grass clippings and like go to Cal Park. Like that was his warm up, and he would go to Cal Park <laughs> And he was a total hacker. He just knew how to hit the ball. And, and he made a lot of uh, cool people from mostly older white men <laughs> that also played tennis, but they were a lot more, um, you know, geared up. <laughs> um, but that's just how it was. It was like, I feel like this neighborhood is really scrappy like that. You know, there's like a lot of stories of like, you know, people carving out their niche and, you know, becoming, you know, having their, their thing. And I think um, that's one of the reasons why we stay here. We, I decided to stay here and live uh, close by to my parents. My parents own property here in, in the southeast side. And, yeah, I just want to be able to um, – they had to leave their, their country because it was so – there was so much poverty, you know, and the families were so big. My dad had 13 brothers and sisters. My mom had 10 and they both left as like kids, you know, they were just like, we're going to go do this. I mean, it's, it's just amazing. Would you say they were 15, Olga? 15. Yeah. Wow. And they made, they made that trip by themselves. That was, that was your mother, your father and and your aunt. Um, So they, um, they came different. My dad came from Nayarit 
and my mom came from Mexico and they met here, but they both came at, at really young ages. Oh, but at the um, same time, I'm sorry, I should have phrased that differently. They both came when they yeah. were like teenagers. Teenagers, teenagers. Um, so it's like it's like an adventure, you know. I mean, it's like, um, <laughs> you know, it's like a whole new world for real. Like my mom says that she wants. When I asked her, you know, we had that talk about like, hey, you know, what are your plans if if you pass away? You know, do you want to be buried in Mexico? And she's like nope she's like i want to be made buried here she's like this is where my life began where i had a chance hmm. so i mean this i mean so i feel i feel like all right that kind of sums it up <laughs> like we're we're staying and and i want to be with them you know they had to leave their families and i saw how traumatic that was growing up you know like phone calls and and you know that's like we would get cards and pictures during Christmas time of the cousins and and stuff, but it was really difficult for them to be away from from their support, you know, from their families. So I, I want to be here with them, and I want them to be part of my life, my kids' life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, these are like two great adventurers, you know. Like, why would sure. I? Why would I not want to be with them? So, and I think that this is something that is is like it's really profound but it's also really common like all these this whole community there's immigrants from all over croatia serbia yugoslavia i mean irish from everywhere and it was the same thing you know we came to work at the steel mills yep and yeah. how quick um, and we forget too i mean i remember my grandfather telling me my family came to Chicago in the 1920s and 30s. So both sides sort of arrived at the same time. Uh, my mom's mom, my dad's dad and mom, all from Italy, and then my mom's dad from the former Yugoslavia. And, you know, I, I found it, I've always found it so amazing, especially, I mean, I guess, I, you know, like all grandparents, you have this thing in your heart for them and all of this. But, but to some degree, I was always amazed at, this these ethnic tensions and this racism that they had because I thought I always always think to myself how the hell did you guys you guys came here and I heard my whole life from my grandparents about how bad the Irish were because at that time of course southern Italians and people from Greece and Portugal and Spain and so on you know were migrating to the United States they weren't getting good jobs they're getting treated a certain way and so on but they it was always so amazing to me this hypocrisy and you know to over the years working in the restaurant industry, I worked with a lot of immigrants, particularly a lot of immigrants from Mexico. And they would always tell me, especially my good friend Juan would be like, Vince, he called me Vincente. He'd be like, Vincente, he's like, you know how nice it is where my family's from in Mexico? He's like, you think I want to live in Michigan City down the street from a coal-fired <laughs> power plant? He's like, you think I want to be in the snow five, six months? He's like, you Americans are crazy. You're like, oh, you should be lucky to be here. He's like, you should be lucky to come and live where my family's from. He's like, it's like a tropical paradise. He's like, it's amazing. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I always, anyway, I, I don't mean to digress, but I just, you know, those stories remind me of this, of this constant tension we've had mm -hmm. here. And now we see it again with especially Muslims, but also uh, particularly Arab Americans, Arab Muslim Americans. Like we are, we're feeling this yet again. And then also uh, this, this constant craziness with Trump and, and the racism and xenophobia toward 
particularly Mexicans. I mean, what, how's your family, how has that made you feel just as a person and just, you've got your own kids, you've got family, like you said, you're deeply rooted in this community of immigrants. What has that been like just on a day-to-day basis with the folks you're talking to and how you feel? Well, you know, um, I think it's really interesting because throughout this whole Rust Belt, you know, just, um, can you hear me okay? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're fine. Yeah, okay. Okay. Um, These experiences are so similar, you know, like, um, and I think that, you know, we grow up watching things like the Cosby Show, Growing Pains, you know, like, uh, Family Ties, like these other shows that I watched when I was a kid, and then like I see the shows that my Boy Meets World, um, my my daughter watches, and it's the same kind of thing. It's always the same, the same. Uh, like we're like training ourselves. Like this is what success looks like. You know, white middle class people matter. <laughs> you know, like they're important. Their feelings matter. Like the school's nice. <laughs> like the the house is nice. And the media has everything to do with it, you know, like there's, it's how we're controlled by like, man, I gotta, I gotta do it. I gotta buckle down. I gotta hustle and make my money so I can buy my house and like, you know, live in the suburbs. (laughs) Like we've been brainwashed to think that that was it. And um, so I think it's been uh, very uh, interesting to me that people are all of a sudden interested in, in what's going on here in the, Southeast side with the pet coke and with, um, you know, the, just everything that's been happening here, um, with, uh, the violence and everything that's happening in Chicago. Um, because I felt like nobody cared, you know, like it has, it has been this way, you know, it's been, like, I, we talk about like how long the, um, the American dream, like how many generations did that actually happen? <laughs> You know, where, like, you could get a job, you could send your kids to college, you can get a good job and and buy a house. You know, it didn't last that long. Like, there's always some kind of crazy upheaval that happens and then, like, a time to, like, reconstruct. Mm -hmm. And then it's, like, this crazy cycle, you know. And and I think, um, so growing up, um, you know, like I said, it was a lot of, fun you know like I love this neighborhood but at the same time you know my uh, my parents had to work um, a lot and like during the time when the steel mills closed um, my dad would drive like the neighbors who didn't have a car um, to you know interviews and that sort of thing Um, I remember like packing food for some of the neighbors you know people who had lost their job my my sister's best friend, you know, her dad was um, a chief, like a fireman chief in, in the steel, steel mill. And when he lost his job, it took a huge toll on him. And um, he, he never really recovered. It was very difficult. It was, it was a very difficult thing, you know, like, and I think that was happening all over, you know, like uh, domestic violence was high, uh, alcoholism, um mm-hmm. It was a really depressing time for a lot of people, and I really appreciate my parents for sheltering us from from so much of that, you know, and and trying to like with the with the little bit that they had, you know, like um, 
helping us um, enjoy like the natural resources around us and, and the little forest preserves and doing a lot yep. of free stuff and outdoor stuff. Um, and, um, but um, yeah, I mean, I think that it's been hard organizing. So what, um, what I've been working on is uh, environmental justice. You know, um, this was a place where there was a lot of steel being made and like we were talking about, and since that has gone away, um, other dirty industry has moved in. And in particular, um, there was a co there's a company called KCBX um, that was storing uh, for eight years um, pet coke, petroleum coke, which is a byproduct of refining uh, um, crude or tar sands oil. And it was coming from BP in Whiting, Indiana, just right over the border, very close to here. And it was being stored here until um, they were, you know, it was sold to different countries, different companies in different countries. Um, they used this product uh, as an industrial fuel to make steel, to make cement. And um, it's really nasty. Like, when this stuff is burned, it uh, creates a lot of CO2. Uh, it's very dirty. And there's no more licenses being issued in the U.S. to burn petroleum coke, but uh, there's a shit ton of companies that have been grandfathered in and are burning it even here in the neighborhood. Um, and that's, uh, that's a, a huge problem. Well, and to tie this together for folks as well, remember, these are this is the tar sands being extracted in Alberta, Canada, destroying mm -hmm. not only the natural environment, but also primarily indigenous lands. So what has been the result of that in Canada? You've had a spike in not only violent crimes and domestic violence, but you've also had this sort of industry of patriarchy and uh, prostitution, drugs, and so on, because there's these camps in the middle of nowhere that are basically loaded with a bunch of men uh, who are welders and pipe fitters and so on and who are on these six-month contracts out in the middle of nowhere. And so then these pipelines are going from Alberta, Canada, through various portions of the United States, and particularly, uh, as you mentioned, now going down to the Whiting facility. And I, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's the largest refinery of tar sands in the Western Hemisphere, correct? Um, yeah, something like that. You're right. I think Thomas Frank has said that before. I, mm -hmm. I, I so nonetheless, I just want to kind of tie that together for folks. So when we're talking about pipelines, we're talking about indigenous rights, we're talking about these different issues. I, I want the people who are listening to understand how all of this is connected and, and so we can move forward, I think, in a more holistic way. Um, absolutely. You're so right. Um, I've seen some images that um, from outer space of what, Alberta, Canada looks like from all the excavating that they've done there and the pictures from before and after. And it's just, it looks crazy. It looks really, it is, it's really bad. And these pipelines, you know, there's a pipeline that's coming right along, along the Michigan, Lake Michigan, all the way to BP, bringing the stuff in and we're all at risk. And it doesn't even, you know, put into account how much, um, so how much of this stuff is being transported through rail through huge metropolises like Chicago? And, you know, uh, it puts a lot of people in danger. Um, you know, we've seen the huge accident that happened in the Gulf. And, I mean, that, 
11 people dead, you know, then it's just, it's just time for us to really move away from our dependency on fossil fuels because all along the route, <laughs> even after you get in your car and you drive it, I mean, it is very problematic uh, for, for our planet. Um, and I, so, you know, our story here in the Southeast side is, is basically like, how, how are we being impacted by, you know, our global dependency on oil? And it's affected us because the, um, these mountains of petroleum coke were so huge. There was 60, 70 feet high, and they were like 100 feet from people's homes. And there were several occurrences where, you know, the, the conditions are right. And, you know, it hadn't rained for a long time. And a storm was coming, and all the pet coaches kind of lifted, you know, like in the wind, in the air. And it covered, it blanketed the whole, like, you know, 300,000 people. <laughs> I mean, it was insane. And um, this happened several times. And pet coke, there's not a lot of studies about pet coke, but the ones that are out there, you know, it um, it can trigger an asthma attack. It's especially problematic for you, for babies and for the elderly. If you have heart problems, you can, you know, uh, have a heart attack. You have a uh, asthma attack. I mean, it's just terrible. And um, and we got really um, mad. We got really angry that this was happening. So um, we organized um, a neighbor, an old neighbor of mine was, um, um, one second, um, sorry, uh, an old neighbor of mine was volunteering with the Southeast Environmental Task Force and found out about the problem, and then she called me, and we started to organize a community front um, to defend ourselves from this problem. So tell me about the campaign. When did it begin and how long did it take for you to achieve your goal or did you achieve your, at least your, the campaign's goal? Yeah, uh, well, the campaign uh, was called the Coalition to Ban Pet Coke. Um, so we, we're still having um, um, done that, but we, we will. We are organizing right now um, around another issue too. Um, there's a company that's emitting manganese um they also like the this other facility the kcbx they're just storing the stuff here until you know they get a, a customer that needs it and it's um yeah so like now we're starting to make these connections like you know we're like putting one fire out after another and we're starting to think of um you know, we need to have like some kind of blanket protection, you know, so that all of these companies have to clean up their act or get out, you know, and, then, and that's where we are right now because we haven't figured that out yet. And tell people, for those who aren't aware, what, what's the, the political situation in the 10th Ward? Like, so give give people, if you would, maybe a little bit of history, maybe a little bit of a understanding. Sure. Maybe those who didn't grow up there or those who aren't familiar aren't maybe not familiar with Fast Eddie and the Chicago machine politics and all of this. But this, I'm thinking of the southeast side in the same way I'm thinking of, say, a place like East Chicago with the lead crisis. And it's not just a lead crisis, but we'll just say that because people at least then will, you know, check it out, research yeah. it or whatever. But, you know, the the point is, is I think it's easy for people to identify it that way. And I think it's probably the same 
in the southeast side where you've had a lot of crony politicians in power, especially machine po- uh, politicians, for a long time. Yeah, and and then I think it's also rooted even in the politics that started at the steel mill, you know, the way that the companies would pit workers against each other. Certain workers would have a – they were treated differently by ethnic group, and by the, the last ethnic group to arrive would have, like, the crappiest job. So then, you know, the steel mills close, and those connected people – you know, the people who were connected to uh, Verdoliac um, went on to get, um, you know, uh, a favor and right. were able to get, um, this is what you're talking about, you know, like um, he's got in trouble quite a bit <laughs> for, hmm. for his behavior. Um, and it's, um, and that's what happened, right? So like the steel mill closed, some of the, he was an alderman, you know, the, the folks, you know, that were, were fighting um, for power here were connected to, you know, the unions and to the, to the industry. And um, all Democrats, and, by the way, I just want to throw that Democrats. in there, not as just a jab, <laughs> but I just want people to know who maybe aren't from the neighborhood or don't understand. Yeah. I mean, um, it's, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, this area has been very blue collar, very working class and very, um, a lot of, you know, Bailey was a Democrat. I mean, that's how, um, that's how it was. And up until, um, you know, this situation with the pet coke, and I feel like the ability to be able to share this information through social media, um, really helped our situation here. Twitter, Facebook, um, you know, we were constantly, constantly, you know, posting things on the uh, neighborhood pages around here. People knew what was happening. A lot of people know. Don't get me wrong. There's probably people who still don't know, but <laughs> like, <laughs> how much, how much of that campaign do you think fed into eventually then uh, Sue Sedlowski Garza getting elected? Because you ran then for the aldermanic mm-hmm. position. Tell me about, tell me about yeah. your experience doing that. So um, my our experience with the incumbent was that you know he we would go and talk with uh, our alderman with John Pope and we would ask him about you know what the plan was you know what our plan was I mean we put all our cards on the table we're like we need you to do something about this or you ain't gonna get our vote (laughs) you know like this is serious. and he would listen to us and nod and you know you know be sound really interested. He even introduced um an ordinance to ban pet coke completely from the neighborhood, but then it it died it didn't go anywhere and then we we were working um to to do something else right like the uh the mayor came in and said that he was going to put some regulations in place. So that these companies, um, you know, have to clean up their act or get out. And they've passed these regulations and they're not even being enforced. We, like, literally just sent them a letter, like, weren't you supposed to do a bunch of stuff? Like, <laughs> announce a throughput limit, how much pet coke should be coming through the Calumet River? Weren't you supposed to an- a- announce um, 
um, you know, like the plans for uh, mitigating this manganese contamination and like all these other things that they promised that they were going to do with these regulations. And this is why we were always fighting for the ban. But um, John Pope was not, uh, he was very upset with us for being so impatient. And because people were outraged when they started to find out what Petco can do to you and they found out about the Koch brothers and KCBX, it was over. They were like, there's no way that, you know, when you could see that he had like more than 20 grand in donations from the Koch brothers, it was like, it was over. Um, I mean, it wasn't easy, (laughs) right? I mean, we, there were seven candidates altogether running and um, out of the seven, the two that had the most votes were um, Sue Garza and Alderman John Pope. And most of us that didn't win, we all went behind Sue and we were like, yes, like we were with you. Um, just about everyone. It was, I think it was only like one person who didn't come along, um, who uh, happened to be a police officer uh, who was running and... Um, and didn't want to be part of it. She, she hadn't really, I don't know what she's doing right now, but, um, we ended up, um, supporting her and getting the, the vote out and all the rest of it. She sent out lots of, lots of flyers talking about, uh, pet Coke too. And so did the alderman. And, um, I think it, this in, issue of the environment and environmental justice was sensationalized in a way that I have never seen. I mean, it was like, it was nuts. I mean, there was, um, flyers that we would get and it would, and it would have, uh, one company called Agrifine that would have, that would always emit these noxious odors here in my neighborhood. And it would show, it was like Pope, you know, like smoke coming out and it was like Pope's face, like getting money or something. It was just hilarious. It was, (laughs) it it was environment, like it was politicized (laughs) and, um, I thought it was great. I thought that, um, I was so happy to see so many people being outraged and voting for the first time. People who had never voted for like ever came out to vote because it was pet coke in their neighborhood and because it was clear to see that that John Pope was taking money from from these polluters. Uh, but she barely won. She won with 20 votes. I know. I mean, I know. a bunch more votes, but they were challenged. You know, votes were coming off of her side, of his side. Right. At the end, it was 20 votes. So <laughs> um, when... It matters. I think it's important for people to vote, <laughs> you know, because, um, yeah, I mean, especially a race like this, especially local races when you can have the most impact and when your elected official is so accessible, you know, like it's just a few blocks away. And it's it's just a real testament of um, how scrappy this neighborhood is. Like I was saying earlier, you know, I just think that, I, I can't even think of it. <laughs> well, the demographics it, it have just, helped it, in my opinion. I mean, I would argue that. I would argue that mm-hmm. the demographics have helped the situation because back when all of like my family and the people, a lot of these folks from Europe who migrated there back in the early part of the 20th century or maybe even earlier than that or after, you know, there that whole political situation with Verdoliac and with the mafia in that neighborhood, and I think that's also a reality that we should probably mention. Now, I don't want to get you in trouble, but I'm just saying, 
you know, there's a lot of things. There's a lot of dynamics in Chicago. It's it's interesting. You know, my friend Roberto always says that if you can organize in Chicago, you can organize anywhere. The amount of dynamics that you have to deal with, the amount of power players, the concentrated levels of power, whether they be corporate or political or with some of the major unions, it's a real challenge. So I, I, I mean, I give you and anyone else who organizes in the city a tremendous amount of credit because I don't think people understand the amount of you know, things that you have to take into account. And really, at sometimes, you know, your bodily harm, you know, people people uh, put their bodies on the line in places like Chicago, mm-hmm. put their lives That's on the line cool. to do this work. And you're absolutely right. You know, it's funny because um, a second ago, I was a little bit distracted because my, my dad was leaving right now. Um, and um, he, um, he was, we were talking, uh, had some tea with him this morning. He came over to take my daughter to school and, he was telling me about um, Arno Mireles and how we need to be careful because this neighborhood is so polarized because there's people. Um, so this this area had the second highest turnout for Trump, uh, second to among Greenwood. And it's uh, a very polarized community where there, where there are people who, um, who really believe this stuff, you know, like believe what Trump is saying. And it makes my dad uh, nervous, you know, for my own safety and for my kids, um, because there was an organizer here, and there's a a school named after him in the neighborhood, and he was organizing around um, slumlords, and one of these slumlords hired some some little kids, some kids, uh, gangbangers, to murder him, and um, it was just absolutely tragic. It was absolutely tragic. I mean, it was... Um, it said that it, it was just like nobody was surprised, you know, because right. that it's it's that bad. Like when you talk about you know the mafia and the gangs and um, yeah, I mean this is a that's it's, it's always been about economics and Arno Mireles was messing with his bottom line. You know, he wasn't w- willing to clean up the neighborhood and and. And we have, you know, thugs on the, in the street, and then we have thugs that were elected into office, like Edward Verdoliak, you know. And I don't know. I feel like the the thugs that are in office are the ones that pose the most threat to me, and that's where I'm focusing my energy. And I think that um, that's why we have um, so much poverty too, you know, because those there's it's all economic, you know, and there's um, people blocking uh, economic development in areas that they intend to gentrify, to turn into something else, you know, like um, Bush, you know, the, they cut down in Bush, which right. is like a neighborhood that's right by, this, right under the Skyway um, in South Chicago. And they, they've built, um, they're trying to build like a new community in, in the area that once was, um, a steel mill and it has been now cleaned up and it's turned into a park and um, all of this is happening. And, but right across the street is um, a really struggling community that had, that, that got hurt the most from the, um, the steel mills closing, you know, and they called this act off all these streets. They made it difficult to get it and out the, um, the um, community center that was there for ages. I mean, they, it was a huge community center. 
Um, it was just closed a few years ago. And um, when I was running for alderman, I was doing some door knocking. I went right where people were hurting the most to really feel and understand what was happening there. And as luck would have it, um, we we were in front of an altercation that happened with the police, where the police used excessive force, um, where the family who called for help was the family who was beaten up and arrested, four members of the family. And it happened right in front of us. And there were some kids on the street, and I was like, holy cow, like... You know, I was just asking them questions, and they said, look, if you weren't here, they know that you're not from this neighborhood. If you were not here, we would have all got arrested. Anybody who was outside would have got arrested. There was, like, four paddy wagons. Um, It was awful. This cop picked up a young girl who was, like, without exaggerating, 100 pounds, and she was pregnant. And body slammed her down to the ground with her hands behind her back and then punched her in the face and then into the mud that was on the ground. And this happened in front of like 11 or more police officers and sergeants and guys with like the white shirts. And right, the detectives. The detectives. And I ended up, um, I recorded the whole thing and I put it on and I gave it to the family and I testified for them, you know, and they got off. But had I not been there, you know, I can't, I don't even know. I, it's just, oh, you it really, just you, re- you really better, uh, keep you. I didn't know that. I didn't know that at all. Yeah. You, you, you gotta mm-hmm. stay safe, girl. It's, it's not, it is not, um, you gotta stay safe. Cause you know, I know how the, you know how them police neighborhoods are too. I mean, in Southeast side in some ways has always been kind of that police neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned yeah. Greenwood as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of like, um, there's a lot of ribbons, blue ribbons in people's houses and in front. And um, it's it's just, like I said, it's very, very polarized. But in, I think when you're in situations like this, you know, you, you have a choice, you know, and we, my choice was to organize and, um, and to fight for all these, I told you, like, it was nice growing up here. I want, I'm fighting for these luxuries that I feel like, our uh, luxury is to live next to the beautiful Lake Michigan, to live next to a river. Um, for me, that's that should be like, um, yeah, like a, just something that you get to enjoy. And I'm not gonna, um, I'm gonna, and I think that I'm not alone. Um, there's a lot of people who feel this way. I feel very supported by the people that I've met at Galisto. Uh, elementary school here at my daughter's school at Marsh, my block, my neighborhood. Like I'm looking in front of my house right now, and uh, we have like the best block parties here. <laughs> Every <laughs> single one of the the houses, you know, we all come out and we have like, uh, I mean, it's just amazing. Like um, the how tight knit this neighborhood is, this community, you know, can be and. Um, so I feel supported and I feel like we're in the process of, um, just creating that space so other people can, you know, come out of the shadows and come out and, um, and start, um, you know, uh, demanding what we need to be able to have a, a thriving community here, you know, like, like, um, you know, the famous quote, you know, like the power to conceive is nothing without a demand. 
So we, we can't just accept the stuff is going to happen or someone else is going to take care of it. Like we have to be very clear about what we want. You know, we don't want Trump. We don't want the Koch brothers. We want, you know, a community that has, um, that is a sustainable community, a community where we can grow food here, where we could um, have jobs here, where we can have um, the arts and music and theater here um, so that kids can, can continue to have, you know, wonderful childhoods in, in the Southeast side. Um, programs like the Sky Art, the YMCA, you know, like there's a lot of things here that are amazing. And I think that's um, a lot of people see that and people are, um, you know, have been inspired and have been coming out to marches. We had 25 people at a, um, a pet coke meeting um, uh, last week. And that's energizing to me. And I feel like, um, like we just need to create these opportunities for people to to become leaders and to um, see that they are the, the leader that they've been waiting for, you know, because we need, you know, we need 20 Vincents. We need 20 Olgas and, and Tom Shepard. I'm sorry, Tom, Tom is Frank. <laughs> Tom is Frank. <laughs> Tom, who I guess um, resembles a shepherd sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> He's gonna choke me probably when he sees me. <laughs> but no, hey, you know the thing I was thinking when you said that though is is well, there's a few things I want to ask you about moving forward. But that is such an important point. People all the time throughout my life, I'm getting as I've been mentioning on social media and, and public events. There's so many people who have been reaching out to me, family members, friends, people I've been like working on for years, and I'm like, please get involved, do something, you know, come out, volunteer your time, whatever. There's a lot of people who are now getting a hold of me, and I think that's great. And I think it's it the it the more we can make this less intimidating, the more we can make this accessible to folks. I also think the more fun we can make it, you know, the more social mm -hmm. people are, the more we could have like barbecues with each other, have a drink, sit down, have some coffee, whatever it is people are into, like spending that time to build real communities and not just seeing each other at events. And I know we talked about this the other day, but, you know, just going through like sort of these mechanical movements of, hey, we're at this rally. Hey, how you doing? I'll see you next month at the next rally or I'll see you two weeks from now at the meeting, like getting to know the people you're doing this with. I have met the most amazing people through doing this work. I mean, I would say more than half of my great friends now are people I've met through doing activist work over the last 10 years. Truly amazing, amazing relationships. And so mm -hmm. I just want to really harp on that point because I, I think people are intimidated sometimes when they hear they're like, oh man, politics and the Koch brothers and, you know, econ mm -hmm. economics. And they, they, they hear these words and, and I think that the system has done, and you mentioned this earlier with the media, has done an excellent job at intimidating people and alienating folks and, and mm -hmm. sort of really making people feel disempowered. And, and I think one of the big yeah, goals of any activist right. or community organizer is just empowering people. Yeah, so, you know, I was, that's so great um, because we, we started a, um, a youth group for young girls um, here in the Calumet region, and at a planning meeting over the weekend, you know, we were talking about how even like in our, um, like our education careers, you know, like you're taught how to read and how to write, but they don't teach you how to speak. You know, you got to take a speech class and to graduate from high school and sometimes in college, but um, there's other 
parts of this uh, country where speaking is actually encouraged. There's theater. There's like um, children are taught, you know, like the elites teach their kids how to talk. And I think uh, and speak their mind. And um, we're not there's not a lot of emphasis on it. That's why people working class people's biggest fear is public speaking because they're like someone's going to ask me something and I'm not going to be able to answer it. And we've been taught that, you know, only certain people who look a certain way are experts. And um, that's simply not the case. You know, like we, um, even if it comes out funky and awkward, um, I think that that you just have to go, people just have to go for it. You know, testify in uh, when there's public comment opportunities, you know, in your, in your community regarding, you know, whatever issue, just do it because... Um, somebody has to, and however it comes out, it's gonna it's gonna leave an impact, and people will remember it, you know. But um, the work is very relational. We have to know who we're working with, you know. We have to trust each other because of all the reasons that we mentioned earlier. Because we feel unsafe doing this work, so you do. You have to find ways to to connect with people. And one of the biggest struggles for me has been that. It's just not very children friendly. And if I can't bring my kids to a meeting, then I can't go, you know, like I can't, I don't have money to pay for a babysitter so I can go to a Petco meeting, you know, twice a month. Right. <laughs> um, right. So they have to be able to come with me. And um, I think as organizers, you know, we have to be more conscious about, um, you know, how are we going to make um, activism and political um, opportunities, you know, um, accessible to people with families, people who maybe don't have, who are undocumented, people who maybe uh, have a criminal record or a drug dependency or have a mental health issues, you know, like how do we make our movements more inclusive um, to families? It's, it's extremely important for us to think about that. And I think it looks a little bit different than what, you know, boardroom style meeting, like how we usually meet, I think is just modeling something that um, corporations use um, like that. I think it needs to be more, more uh, casual, more uh, organic and safe, you know, like check Like we started doing things like using a methodology where we check in at our meetings Um and and then we do a lot of evaluating at the end and talk about how um, the work is transformative. You know, it's not transactional. We're not trying to make a deal with anybody, <laughs> you know, like that. Like, um, I don't know. Um, it's like, I think we're used to that kind of negotiating, you know, like making, like you come to this and I'll do this. And then, you know, I think. Some of that um, is that Alinsky stuff too, though. You know, some of that is yeah. that Saul Linsky school of, hey, well, what are your self-interests? And we'll go towards those self-interests and maybe we can each obtain our self-interests at the, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, some I of mean, it comes I from that. But I, I hear what you're saying. It's probably, it's probably much bigger. It's just the societal thing. But I'm thinking of also that sort of Alinsky school yeah. reminds me of a lot of those politics. Yeah. And I think um, some of that is, is important, you know, like knowing who people are and why they're around because. You you might not want to be around them, you know. Right. Like, I think we should be I think we should be choosy with who we work with, um, you know, because you know when you have 
folks who are just creating a lot of chaos and stuff's not moving forward and people are just, you know, I, I think having processes and um, all of that, uh, I think is also really important, but also like we we're talking about just being casual, you know, and having um, casual opportunities to be, to just get to know people. I think it's important and it's hard, you know, for all the reasons I mentioned, you know, if you are, if you do have a uh, mental illness, if you do have um, a drug dependency or other things or people who don't want to go where there's alcohol being served, you know, for for obvious reasons. And I think, um, yeah, we just have to, like, adapt. You know, a friend of mine, his dad was a fireman, and he always would say, adapt or die, adapt or die. Mm-hmm. You know, like, if something's not working out, you got to adapt or, you know, or it's just not you're going to be stuck in that situation, you know, so... I think that's important to be able to be flexible and to recognize when, you know, your process isn't working, if you know, people aren't coming around or you're alienating people, then you got to change the process. Absolutely. Those are great points. So locally, you have Sue in, in power. Uh, you've got the Democrats you're dealing with in the city. Nationally, you mentioned you don't want Trump and you don't want the Koch brothers, but I know you and I, I think I know you well enough to say that you also don't want neoliberals like Rahm Emanuel or Democrats like Hillary Clinton in power. So with all of this happening, Trump's in power now, what are you thinking about here moving into the future? You know, we've got Trump in power, you've got Democrats locally. What what are you thinking about in the coming weeks, months, and years ahead of us? Um, well, I mean, I had a lot of wishes like when Bernie was running and was mobilizing so many people, so many young people, you know, talking um, about, you know, coming together and working, finding a common ground. And I I thought that it would have been such an awesome opportunity for him to just break from the Democratic Party. He's been running for as an independent for so long um, that it could have been uh, an opportunity to start something new, you know, like, um, but that didn't happen, obviously. And I think that it's still something that we should strive for. You know, I think that the longer we wait, um, the, those are just missed opportunities. Like if we've already, there's a lot of folks, amazing folks who are in office right now who have run as Democrats and have um, been able to push the envelope and, and get stuff done, right? And I think those people should come with us. <laughs> um, and not, it's like, you know, just like this, when the same um, thing that people say all the time about the police, right? Like, you know, we all know, like a good, we all know a good police officer, but the police, the police force, the police as uh, its own entity is not working, you know. And that's how I feel about the Democrats and um, just the fact that we had someone like Hillary Clinton, you know, who um, I mean, I, I don't even have to go into. I mean, geez, just has so many strikes against her, you know, from um, just the amount of money that she's gotten from these uh, these industry that's doing the polluting, you know, and um, it's just too much. Uh, so I think that, yeah, that it is absolutely time for uh, something different uh, because this is definitely not working. And I think just like people have been moved to, um, to back Bernie, to march, uh, you know, the Women's March that just happened that was organized in a month. I didn't know that. I just learned that. <laughs> like, that's 
crazy um, that we that we should use this momentum that we should start talking about this um, with with folks, you know, uh, to see what what we can come out of it. You know, like what's gonna what's gonna be different? You know, like we keep going in these cycles of like up and down, and then we go back to the Democrats, and we are forced to support Democrats because we don't want a Republican in office, you know, and right. I'm just, I mean, they, I've, they've lost all their credibility and I'm not willing to waste my vote like that anymore. I want something that I can vote for that actually means something to me, not just because I'm afraid of the other thing. That's a good spot to end. Olga Batista, thank you so much for joining us today. It's awesome to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Talk soon. All right. Well, there you have it, folks. That was Olga Batista, community organizer, mom, environmentalist, writer, all-around badass. Great to have her on the program. You're listening to Meditations and Molotovs. I am your host, Vince Emanuele. You can find us here every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time. I'll be here next week with, hopefully, Alexis Mincola from the band Three Teeth. <laughs>